0: Hello everyone, I'm so glad that you're here today. Mothers, thank you for taking this time and spending your day here in this place. And I know this is the very beginnings of some chaos as we head into summer and school begins to wind down. And as a pastor, especially as someone that has taken a spiritual lead in your life, and you've allowed me that, I have an expectation for you. My expectation is that as summer begins to start up and school begins to wind down and we find ourselves from Mother's Day to graduation to Memorial Day and onward, that uh, there can be a time where we just start to slough off in the faith. And maybe it's because of a series of vacations, maybe it's because we're running around every direction and using our weekends in a different way, but I don't want you to do that. My expectation of all of you as everyday disciples is to make your self in a place that is a grace-filled place. And if you're not here in Washington and able to come to this place, we expect that you go to another place where you can worship the Lord and be around faith-filled people so that your your soul can be energized for the week that you're going to be taking on throughout the summer. Agreed? Yeah, everyone looked real happy about that, right? I was like, Dad, why did you just tell us that? Right? Well, we've been learning how to be everyday disciples, and a disciple is someone who is learning to follow Jesus. We haven't figured it out yet, so following Jesus is a journey. It's not a destination. You have to remember that. And we've been learning from the life of David, whose story is found in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament portion. David is far from perfect. He's a guy that has all sorts of hangups, but God was willing and able to use those downfalls and imperfections in his life. God uses broken people. You need to take note of that. God uses broken people. With all of David's downfalls, with all of his imperfections, here's what God said of David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I wanna make sure you heard that, read that correctly. Because as we are about to talk about loving, rebellious children, you might be a little overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy as a parent, or regret, or guilt, or spite. In this room is filled with parents. It's also full of children. And I don't know if the relationship that you have with one another, parent to kid, is strong or if it has soured over time. So what I want to do today is to remind you that David was a passive parent with a household of rebellious and disobedient kids, yet God said, that is a man after my own heart. God uses broken people. David and his household are guilty of like a number of crimes. I mean, these guys had committed spiritual crimes, uh, sin, like nobody's business. Incest, rape, murder, adultery, sexual abuse, substance abuse, more murder, more adultery, and then even more murder. So please, uh, don't allow your regrets of your life be the very thing that holds you back from being a good parent today or being a good child. Let me state it like this. Don't allow the regrets of your, your life to hold you back from loving God, from loving others, and loving those hard to love family members in your life. You know, the story of David that we're going to learn from today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 18. If you'd like to follow along, I'm not going to get into the exact scriptures of it. We're going to point some out. But it'd be helpful maybe for you to follow through those uh, five or six different chapters. And what I'm going to do is retell it in a simple story. Now, that story sounds maybe like the plot of a Lifetime movie. Uh, it may also sound like an episode of Days of Our Lives. But I want to assure you this was David's life The story begins full of family dysfunction. David is a distant dad. He has feelings of inadequacy. He doesn't feel like he can correct his children because his sins of his youth had been made public to them, and everybody knows about his sin, especially the one of the adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and for a number of reasons, David has not intervened. He has not disciplined his children because he feels like he doesn't have the moral high ground to do so. You know, my dad was a wonderful father. But he was also a very rebellious youth in his days. And so when it came time to discipline his two sons, he handed that discipline off to my mother. He didn't feel like he had the moral high ground because he looked into what his children were doing, the trouble they were causing, and he recognized he'd caused so much more trouble than we ever had before. And maybe that's how you feel today, that you don't have the moral high ground. I'm saying don't let your failures as a parent stop you from being a parent in the present to your children. And that family dysfunction could have stopped if David just stepped up and became a dad rather than being distant. And the palace where David had lived was a a phallus full of of a blended family. So if you're a blended family here today, I want you to know, and you need to know, that God uses blended families. You're not a write-off in his book. You're not damaged goods to him. Just think through the scriptures. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, They all had blended families and God used them. Think about Jesus' own situation. He was raised in a blended family. Never allowed your blendedness to be your brokenness. Jesus and our Lord can use your blendedness so that you can do mighty acts of ministry. David's family dysfunction wasn't because of his blendedness in the palace. David's family dysfunction came because of their unwillingness to confront the sin in the household. David had a sin-filled son named uh, Amnon. He was sick with lust for his half-sister Tamar. The scripture tells us he was so infatuated with his half-sister only because she was a virgin. He wanted to be the first one. And, And that day, Amnon was... Allowing sin to win in his life, he raped his sister. You know what he thought? He thought that by raping her, that would show her his love. Man, how sin makes us think so crazy. Tamar was completely disgraced, of course, by that. And what sin did in Amnon's life was he turned that intense lust for his half-sister into intense hatred after that sinful and sickening event and Amnon went from lust to this fierce hatred of Tamar and the scripture says about it so Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love he loved her with and he said to her get out of here Uh, Tamar is totally humiliated by this. She moves out of the palace and she moves in with her older brother, a man by the name of Absalom, and with that sin, David's household went from family dysfunction quickly to family destruction. It changed. And you've recognized this, I think, in your own family. One event, one sin, one comment, one moment can completely change the family dynamic. From dysfunction to destruction And David, he didn't know what to do with this injustice. Um, What did he do? Was he outraged by it? Well, the scriptures say when David heard what had happened, he was very angry. But it stopped there. He got angry, but there was no action and he sulks about his son's sinful behavior, but he does nothing to correct his kid. And, and I understand that Amnon was an, a, an adult at this point, And maybe David felt that, like, you know, how do I really bring discipline against my adult son? No, this, this sin is too terrible. And what I would have told David was, once a parent, always a parent, no matter how grown your child is. A parent's commitment to a kid never fades over time. I mean, your children still need your love. They still need your encouragement, no matter. They still need your discipline. They still need your biblical guidance and correction. But David got angry, but he took no action. As a result of David's inaction, Absalom becomes bitter towards his dad, filled with anger, and that anger turns into a vengeful spirit. And since his dad didn't bring justice to Amnon and and the terrible sin that he committed, Absalom decides he's going to take justice into his own hands. But two years pass, because Absalom is a conniver. He's he's kind of like a, a, a manipulator of sorts, and two years passed, and so he creates this party. And he asks Ammon, his brother, to come to the party. And he gets him really drunk. It's late into the the night of the party. and, And Absalom has conspired to murder his brother Amnon. And he hires a group of guys. And as Amnon's getting drunk, that group of guys comes in and they kill him and they murder him. Absalom understands the gravity of the situation, recognizes what he ultimately did. He pulled the trigger on his own brother's death. And so he flees the palace, flees the city of Jerusalem, and he goes into hiding My question is on that one, how did David respond to that? What did he do with the news that one of his children murdered the other? Again, he got angry, but he didn't have any action. 2 Samuel 13, 39, and King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with Absalom. You know what? He, He wanted to make things right with Absalom, but... But wanting to make things right is not the same thing as making things right. And all this time passed, three years, three years. Absalom goes into hiding, not knowing how his dad is going to take that news, not knowing how his dad is going to react to one sibling killing the other. And David allows three years to go by without any reach out, without any show of love, without any expression of love. He allows his child to go through life without a single word from his father after that terrible and tragic event. And you know what, David? David lost all, re- got, had the had, had respect broken by Absalom. Absalom looked at his, his dad and said, uh, if, if dad can't run his, his family, there is no possible way he can run this country. And so what happens next is spins uh, an entire country into chaos. And so this dysfunctional and destructional family spills out into the the country and into the nation and the culture and Absalom turns into a spiteful son and he makes a play to overthrow the government that his dad leads and he crafts a plan. First part of Absalom's plan is he's gonna meet with his dad after three years and beg for forgiveness and he does. It's not genuine forgiveness but he seeks forgiveness just to kind of get into good standing because the second part of his plan is he's gonna capitalize on his good looks. 2 Samuel 14 says, Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. He cut his hair only once a year, and then only because it was so heavy. He weighed it out. It came to five pounds. That's crazy, right? Like, he was totally prideful in his hair. I can just imagine Fabio in the palace, you know, that kind of guy. And so here he is using his good looks, and what he's doing is he's becoming political with it. He's, he's like a local celebrity. He is the prince, And he's handsome, women wanted to meet him, men wanted to be him, so he used his good looks to gain status and gain favor amongst the people. And the third part of his plan was to become king. So what did he do? He sat at the main gates of the city of Jerusalem for four years, and he said hi to everybody. Started to get to know their names. And people would come to him with problems instead of going to the king. And then he would act like he was concerned for them. And that he felt sorry for them. And it just began to sway the people to his side. The scripture actually says he stole the heart of the people of Israel. The fourth part of his scheme was to put an army together and to attack his dad and overthrow the government and then to kill his father. But David had, through a series of connections, discovered that Absalom had assembled an army of more than 12,000 men. That scared David. David's older in years. He might have defeated a giant. He might have killed a bear. He might have defeated a lion to protect the flock. But David now is older. He doesn't have the strength, but he has the spirit, and he knows to get out of Dodge. Because if he doesn't get out of the city, Absalom's going to come and defeat him because David doesn't have his army put together. So David and his advisors escape to the desert, and in that desert, they waited out until they can assemble their army and then come up with a strategic defense plan. And that time Absalom moves in, uh, becomes kind of like a, a quasi-king. He establishes himself in the, temp- in, the, in the palace, and that's when he implements phase five of his plan. Phase five is humiliate dad. And so what he does is he takes... These concubines that were left behind in the palace, concubines were women that voluntarily gave themselves over to the king for sexual pleasure. And Absalom takes these concubines that were of David's, in David's household, and he takes them up to the rooftop of the palace, and he rapes them for the whole city to see. You know, the only time that we're introduced to whatever took place on the rooftop of David's palace is when we hear that David lusted for Bathsheba on that rooftop. Now this was a son's way to say, Dad, I will never forget about the sin that you caused when I was a little boy. I will never forget on how that has hurt me and I'm never gonna let that go. You know, Absalom only wanted to be king. He wanted to humiliate his father in the process. But he forgot who his dad was. His dad is a warrior. His dad has the spirit to kill His dad is cunning and smart and strategic. And while he may not have the strength in his body, he still has a sharp mind. And through a a series of events that you find in a couple of chapters in 2 Samuel, you'll see that David tricks his son to get onto the battlefield. Now Absalom wants his dad dead, but not David. David has a different kind of bleeding heart for his kid. Regardless of how messed up his family has become, David's heart hasn't changed for his kids. He still loves him. And so he tells every single thousands of soldiers that walk through the city gate before they head to the battlefield these words: "Treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake." I know he's ruined my life for the last four years. I know he's wrecked it, and I know he's rebellious, and I know I haven't been the dad I should have been. I've been very passive as a parent. but would you, when you see my son on the battlefield, don't kill him. Treat him nice. Be good. And then this war breaks out, kind of a civil war between father and son. And David's men, they're like warriors. And then like all of a sudden, it pops to the mind of the enemy, Absalom's army. Oh, yeah, these guys are skilled fighters. You know, the Bible says about it that they are like wild bears robbed of their cubs. Fierce. And what happens in the battle is David's troops push Absalom's army into retreat. They have a maneuver where they fall into retreat and land themselves into a very dense forest. And Absalom's army now is in the forest. And the scriptures tell us that the forest was so dangerous that more men died in the forest. And because of the forest, than died of the sword. And Absalom then makes his escape. Not too many men left. He knows that he is next on the list of most wanted. And he hops on the back of a mule and rides through that dangerous forest. But as he does, his hair gets caught in a limb. You know that prideful thing that he had in his life? It became his destruction. Why? Because pride goes before the fall. And his hair gets caught in the limbs. And now he's flung off his mule and he's hanging in the limbs by his hair. That's when a general by the name of Joab, a general of David's army, comes and sees him dangling in the air. And Joab says to Absalom these like total cold, merciless words I will not waste my time like this with you. And then he took three javelins, actually, the word there is three sticks, probably three sharpened sticks in his hand, and thrust them into the heart of Absalom. While he was still alive in the oak, and the scriptures go on to say that that was a mortal wound, but he was still alive and breathing, so 10 warriors came over and hacked him to pieces with the sword, and to make sure that he was completely dead. And so that news, of course, goes back and reaches the palace. It reaches back to dad, David. How do you think David received that news? I think like any father, he wasn't celebrating over his child's death. 2 Samuel 18.33 says the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom. My son, my son Absalom. Listen to this line. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. such a sad scene. And uh, the rest of David's life, he was wounded emotionally. He was wounded mentally. And honestly, he never recovered. I mean, honestly, who recovers after the death of a, of a child? Okay, every story in the Bible has purpose and meaning. But what's this story's purpose? I mean, to, to the original audience, it had meaning, and to us today, it has meaning. So what does the story of a dysfunctional family that has turned very destructional mean to our life today? As an everyday disciple, what am I supposed to gather from this, God? What am I supposed to get from a family that had dysfunction, destruction, and then just tragedy scattered within it? What are the principles that I can apply to my life? I think what David teaches us is that passive parenting doesn't work. Being a distant dad is not going to be something that raises godly kids. Let me just say it like this. Spend quality time with your kids. That sounds like such simple advice, but David naively thought that his kids would be raised and just be just fine without his help. Like he thought maybe the palace would raise them, the culture would raise them, the teachers would raise them, maybe family would raise them, his friends' parents would raise them. I don't know what he thought. He was passive when his daughter was raped. He was passive when his son murdered his brother. He was passive when Absalom came and tried to take over the kingdom. Everyone else in the nation knew that there was trouble in the palace filled with kids that had troubling lifestyles. But David decided to do nothing with their problems. Instead, he just was hands off. He was out of touch of their lives. Parents, don't be so naive by this. You know, the older your children get, the more they're going to be out of sight, right? They're going to be out of the house more and more often as they get older. But don't let that equate to you being out of touch in their lives. Proverbs twenty-two, fifteen gives us some sobering warnings. As a as a parent, children are going to do foolish things. That's pretty blunt. And you say, yeah, they do some. Foolish, they do some stupid things. Is what they do. And most of those stupid things. Most parents are oblivious to, not because we want to be, because they're just out of sight. And what we discover is as we get older and more mature in our relationship with our kids, we stop asking good and meaningful, pointed, loaded questions of them. And I get it. As they get older and mature, we give them more trust, and that's the way it should be. But that doesn't mean you should let down your guard. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't become something else but their parent. Listen, I know there's a lot of you in here, you say, I wanna be their best friend. They need a parent, not a pal, And they need you to be the one that has those pointed, loaded questions. They need to be asked, why were you a few minutes past curfew? They need to be held to account when you say this disciplinary action is going to happen. You go, yeah, but there's 17. I know there's 17, but you said there was going to be consequences if they came in late. You said there was going to be consequences if they did that again. And you need to hold to it just like you used to when they were three. See, at every stage of life, a parent is needed. Your godly advice is needed. Even if it kind of just stumbles out of your mouth, that godly advice is needed. It's a necessary guide for them. They need to hear from you. And I know what some of you are asking. You're asking a question, how do you start to get back into your rebellious child's life? I mean, maybe that's already blown apart. Well, let me give you some steps. First, I think you need to ask God for some wisdom. Start right there with prayer. Just say, God... You teach me how to get involved in my child's life at every level. Pray for guidance to be a better parent. Second, take advantage of all the Christian resources that are out there. There are so many good Christian resources. Focus on the Family has a ton of them on their website and other things. There's Grace-Based Parenting. There's Bringing Up Boys by Dr. Dobson. There's The Strong-Willed Child. It goes on and on and on of all the amazing books that exist Get some of them, read them, become a better parent. Understand who your child is in a greater way and so that you can begin to bring guidance to them and discipline to your life. Have them on hand so that when your child acts up, you can say, please pass me that parenting handbook. I need to smack my kid with it, right? If nothing more. And you're going, well, my kid's already raised. My kid's already raised. No, he's not. No, she's not. Your kid's still being raised. When do you give up encouraging? When do you give up guiding? When do you give up leading and correcting as a parent? And the answer should be never. Third, as you become distant and your children start their own families, moms, dads, let me say it to you like this as a kid, become selfless. My mom has two boys that live thousands of miles apart in this nation. She's got this rare blood cancer, and she's had this for years, and she could easily pull the sympathy card and say, boys, come home, I don't feel well. But she doesn't. She's so selfless in her actions, and she recognizes that our schedules are busy with a growing family, and she doesn't demand that we come to her. Instead, she walks away from her schedule, and she self selflessly comes to us. And as parents, I think that's something you're going to have to start adapting. Rather than saying, why don't the kids come and see me more often? Why don't the kids come and grandkids come and see me more often? Maybe with the time that you have in your empty nest, you can go and visit. And you can start becoming selfless. Fourth, never stop giving hugs, regardless of how much they push back. Always encourage your kids you know, my kids, my oldest is in the sixth grade going to the seventh, and so you know how that is. He comes in for a hug, and he gets like a pencil all of a sudden. <laughs> you know, he had a ball game the other day. He was totally discouraged by the attitude of his teammates, and so he's like nearly teary eyed and he's talking about how there's... He, here's, here's what he said. My team is uh, emotionally unstable. I love that. <laughs> like, you sound like your father, man. You're like... You know. <laughs> So I hugged him and we hugged it out and we tried to encourage him the best we could. We told him, you know, you're going to have to step up to the plate and you're going to have to become the, the one teammate that keeps them together and holds them up and encourages them and inspires their spirit to do something greater and pop them out of that mood. And I'm thinking, boy, Matt, that was really good advice. You should take it yourself. <laughs> because my advice is so good, but my actions are not that good. And I hear I am telling you, encourage your kids. I think two weeks ago I told you, you know what, that's a new concept for me. That hasn't always worked. I've kind of driven my kids. And I've recognized that encouragement goes so much further. It's like the fuel that's going to shape their day. It's going to change their week. It can even direct their life. Just encourage and hug your kids. Love on them for a little bit. Never stop doing that. Another lesson David's dysfunctional family teaches is confront your children when they're doing wrong. Last weekend, we learned about David as Nathan, his friend, came and held him to account on a sin. And what did David do? David said, I am so sorry, God. I don't want to be that guy. And then David went back to following after God. But when it came to his kids' sin and confronting his kids, he didn't do anything like that. He became passive. He became a distant dad. Parents, you're not always going to be liked by your children. You know that, right? When David's kids sinned, he just ignored it. He passed it off. You'll save yourself a lot of heartache if you become a parent that is proactive rather than passive. Let me, let me just tell you what I mean. Teach your children today about the dangers of drugs. Teach them how their friends are going to pressure them to do things that they don't want to do and shouldn't be doing. Tell them and teach them to stand up for themselves and make up their own mind. And then have that talk continually, not just one time, because that's the way we roll. Okay, we had the talk. Good. Whew. No, every single time you find them wandering, you continue that talk. Talk to your kids about sex. Didn't we just talk about that about you know, six or eight weeks ago in the Song of Solomon? I want to talk about sex more often, but the elders around here are like, you know, no, nah, that's good for every 17 years, okay? Sit them down, talk to them, tell them about how God has designed it, about love and marriage and dating, and how that should all work out. You're saying, "Well, I don't know how that that should work out." We had a great sermon series on the Song of Solomon; it'll give you some great insight on how to do that. Teach them to respect authority: their teachers, their principals, the police. Teach them some kind of authority. Teach your children to walk away from frivolous fights, but to stand tall for the right fight. The list goes on and on and on. I mean, all the ways we could be proactive with our. Kids, but here's the problem. Here lies the problem. We're not proactive. We wait until the problem happens, and then what do we do? We react, and usually we react the wrong way. We we act overly aggressive, and what happens? We get angered like David, but we bring no action. Distant parenting, passive parenting doesn't work. If David would have just confronted Amnon when he raped his half-sister, it would have stopped the continual unfolding of tragic events throughout the palace. Even though David had some sins in his past, he could have just said, no more. I may have not have lived up to it when I was your age, but that does not happen in this household. It will not be tolerated, there will be justice. And all of you are like, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, I agree with that. But that's not always what happens in our households. Like when your daughter came home drunk, And you recognized that the next morning when you looked at her car and you saw the long scratch and, and the mirror that was nearly ripped half off and you confronted her and you found out that she came home driving drunk from a party, you reamed her out. But as you looked down the street and you saw your neighbor's mailbox bent over, you knew that was all connected. And while you punished her, you never made right with your neighbor. You tried to hide that. And I got a good idea Why? You didn't mind punishing her within the privacy of your own home, but you didn't want her punishment to go public and have your daughter known as the one that drive home drunk. Maybe there were bigger ramifications there. I mean, what did you just teach her? You walked into your son's room and you saw the condom laying there, and you're no fool, you're no fool. Every time the girlfriend's over, the door is shut, and you think to yourself, well, at least they're being safe. What did you just teach your child? When you didn't confront them on their sin. Yeah, you know, I had read some time ago that the Great Wall of China was built so that it would protect from the barbarians that would come in from the north. They built that wall so incredibly tall that they could live at peace knowing that there's no way anybody could ever scale that and invade them. But did you know that within the first 100 years of that wall being built and having protection, three times China was invaded. And the enemy didn't come over the wall. And the enemy didn't even tunnel under the wall. The enemy just bribed the gatekeeper. And they marched the armies right through the main gates. They put so much hope in that wall of protection that they forgot to teach their children about integrity. You can teach, you can't teach what you don't model. And I know that in life, there are, there are lessons that are caught more than they're taught. And most teachings, most teachings that are taught kind of enter the ear and rattle around and go out. The, the ones that are caught. they're accepted. David was so busy being king, he forgot how to run, he forgot how to run his family. And so all this wrong started to happen, and he got angry, but he didn't act. He tells us passive parenting doesn't work. When he finds wrong in his kids, he doesn't confront. Now here's what I'm saying. Moms, dads, be quick to confront. Be quick to lay down some discipline. That kind of leads us into this next part because there's so many good lessons from David's bad example. Here, here's what he teaches us. It's necessary to discipline your children. It's necessary. Look, every child has a different temperament, right? <laughs> Parents are like, yeah, they do. It's crazy. Came from the same mom and dad, but they got a different temperament. Therefore, I think every child's gonna have to be disciplined differently. That's the way we work at My three sons, they all have a, a different way of being disciplined. So we've found out what works best for them, and, and they think it's unfair, but we, we know that it brings the best correction to each of their lives. And I, I think you're, you would be simple minded to believe that one form of discipline works across the board for all of your children and for every child. So here's what I'm getting at. If a parent says to you, We spank our kids. Don't go crazy on them. Don't go crazy on them. That might be the best bliss discipline for that child. The, the, the scriptures even say, whoever spares the rod hates his kids, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline them. And you've heard it like this, spare the rod, spoil the child. But let me say on the other hand, if there's a parents in here that say, you know what, we do time outs and we do time ins. Don't go all scriptural on them and be like, you need to give them the rod break off your belt and really smack them around a little bit. You know, that's going to be the best thing for them. No, it's not. It's not going to be the best thing for them. That parent has to decipher and ask God's wisdom on the best method to to bring correction to the child because discipline isn't just punishment. Discipline is punishment for the means of correction. Don't do that again. Why? Because it will hurt. you got to ask God for some discipline and how to bring it out. When it comes to this one, you'll have to respond rather than react. David didn't do that. Uh, Today we handed out the book to the uh, families that were here on stage, the book called Have a Kid, New Kid by Friday by Dr. Kevin Lehman. I haven't read the whole thing, but what I had started to read on was pretty good. It talked about don't get your kid out of the punishments that they're deserving of in society. You know how parents do that? We try to whitewash things. And so when it comes to... Punishments of the parents, punishment from a principal, punishment from the police, or even worse case, punishment from prison. We oftentimes try to hide them from those punishments, even though they're justified and deserved. When we should be standing beside them and recognizing to them that they deserve those punishments because of their actions. Scriptures teach us, discipline your children and they'll give you peace. They'll bring you delight, your desire. I think appropriate discipline is like a flu shot. A little bit pain, a little bit of pain now to save you a whole lot of pain later. Okay, a couple pieces of advice as we—this will be fast. Pray daily for your kids and your parenting. Pray daily for your kids and your parenting. If you're sitting here saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond to these kids that are not a part of my life anymore because things have gotten so out of hand. How do I respond? Well, first, pray that the faith they once had as a child, if they did, is restored unto them. God says, I will be faithful to complete these things in your children's life. I'll be faithful to bring belief to completion. Pray that they'll receive that too. Pray that your child will have a change of heart for God. They might be re- living rebelliously towards, towards him. Uh, confront, pray that people in their life will confront them, will, will correct them, and encourage them. Uh, and third, pray that your child will be open to God's teaching. Now, I recognize in this room there's parents that have children that have already left the house, and you didn't or you couldn't teach them some things. Pray that God will. Four, pray that you'll know the line between helping and enabling your kid. I know that's different for everyone, and I know it's blurry, but you got to do some prayer. God, where is that line? Five, pray that your heart will be full of forgiveness and grace. These are about you now. I I know that nothing can wound a heart quite like the wounds that come from a son or from a daughter. So pray that you won't be apathetic. Pray that your heart won't become callous. Pray that it will be open to forgiveness. Six, pray that your relationship with your kid will be restored to a better place than you ever expected it to be. You know what I found out when it comes to prayer? Prayer changes things. But most importantly, it changes me. And when my heart is all revved up against somebody, I've got to allow that new heart to come ushered in, and it comes through praying for that person. It gives me a new attitude, and it causes me less heartache. Last piece of advice, show love and speak love. Show love and speak love. Some of you are filled with guilt today. You're filled with guilt because of what you just listened to, and you're thinking of all the mistakes you've made, and you're not thinking of all the, any of the good things you've done as a parent. You're just thinking of the mistakes. Your guilt's not going to change a thing today. Dr. James Dawson put it like this. He said, children and young adults are capable of making choices that contradict everything that they have been taught. And we as parents shouldn't be too quick to give ourselves the credit or the blame for everything we do. It's time today to show love and to speak love. I don't know what your past has been, but I don't think that really matters. Some of you sons and daughters in this room, you need to hear that towards your parents. It's time to show love, speak love. Mom's dad's, it might be the moment where you you call them up rather than for waiting for the call today that you know is not gonna happen and say, I love you and I'm sorry for what I said. Some of you are like, you know what? I don't have that opportunity. I don't have a child that's with me anymore. They're, they have passed, they've passed away. What do I do now? You need to pray to God and say, God, remove this guilt that I have from me. The past needs to be reconciled. We should learn from it, but we don't need to be enslaved by it. And then let's remember that we, we've all rebuilt I mean, in this room is a group of rebellious children. That's what we are. And friends, there are no perfect children just as there's no perfect parents. And we've been rebellious to a perfect father. And the only father who's ever had a perfect son, God and Jesus, God had him sacrificed. So that guys like you and me, people like us, who are living in rebellion towards a perfect father, could have a right relationship with him. If you haven't found that Father today through Jesus, I invite you to meet with me and some other ministers right over here by the baptistry. We're going to give you a chance today to respond as we stand together right now as we sing this song of invitation.